Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, and the kids are dismissed to their classes prepared for them. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Before we go any further, let's look to the Lord in prayer. The only Father, give us wisdom to know how we are to live. As we think of these words, these phrases, these, the text that you've given for us for today. As we look at the way that these things were set up from the very beginning and how they transcend culture and they transcend time and these truths are, are not up for us to debate, but they're up for us to follow. So, dearly Father, may we live our lives understanding that you said it and that settles it. So, dearly Father, give us wisdom. We need it. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Now, there's certain phrases and there's certain dates and there's certain numbers that carry with it, uh, just jam-packed full of information. Uh, for, for those of you who may be following, have followed, uh, there's a team called the Green Bay Packers. Uh, there's some dates and there's some things that are famous there. And if you, if one, if you have your heart right and you follow the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, there are some dates that even both of them share, even some numbers that both of them share together. For those of you who may remember back, it was 4th and 22 when all of a sudden the Green Bay Packers forgot how to play defense and left a man wide open in the middle of the field. And even every Eagle fan is scratching their head going, what just happened there? Right? But in that rivalry, you see 4th and 22, I just say it and immediately some of you are responding to it. Some of you may have no earthly clue what he's talking about, others of you do, and even in sports and all sorts of stuff. Just by saying numbers come with it things. Another one in our, in our human history, in the American world, and even in uh, the whole world, 9-11. What life was before 9-11, what life was like after 9-11. You say 9-11, and people respond. Sometimes it's used as a litmus test. To, it was not nearly this, and then they quote some type of fact that was there. What we're doing right now with inflation, I love when they go... This is an all-high, a 40-year all-high. And you're like, so that means 40 years ago this happened. All right. So like, why are we panicking? It happened 40 years ago, you know, or whatever. And we, we wrestle with all these things, and as if these numbers are supposed to scare us or cause us to uh, run in fear. Another phrase that should immediately, some of you should, uh, should see black and white and some guy hopping out of something, one small step for man, and immediately you think, the moon landing, some of you may be going, it was a hoax anyway. And all the other things that are going on during that time, immediately when I just say one small step, immediately comes with it thoughts. Another one, Apollo, Apollo 13. With that and all the things that are going there, if you're into history and things like that, you should remember all the famous things that were done to get a group of guys in a crippled ship back to the U.S. and the things that were done there. A name. Lee Harvey Oswald, all right? There wasn't too many Lee Harveys after he did his dastardly deed, if he acted alone or not, that is still left for the 
conspiracy theorists to argue, but even that in and of itself brings up certain things. When you think of Lee Harvey Oswald, immediately you're going to think of other people, JFK and Ruby and things like that, that are just all involved in it by just saying his name. Each one of these things is loaded with information. Each one of these, by just saying it, can cause you to have feelings one way or the other, groaning or what, what is happening around you when those things took place. I still remember in my own life, 9-11, I remember the day where I was, the guy who said what had happened, all of the things around it, I remember as if it happened yesterday. And my prayer is when we get finished, these three, two words and one phrase, that when you hear these things, it should cause that same thing to go through your mind. And we'll dive into this here in a second. Because in our passage here in 1 Peter 3, 7, there is a command that Peter is giving us. He's giving it to husbands where he literally says husbands are commanded in this passage here to honor their wives. All right, this is the command of the passage, husbands, honor your wives. Now, before we can even dive into this, we need to take a look at the very, very beginning because you have two individuals interacting here. You have a husband and you have a wife, right? And so unless you understand what those words mean in their fullness, you will not get the full picture of what these things mean. And so, before we even understand the relationship of a husband and wife, we have to look at three very important words that, given this message, maybe even three years ago, you would have thought some of this would not even be needed, but I believe because we did not do it three years ago, we need to do it now as a church. So the goal of the sermon is this, is that when you hear these three things, woman, wife, weaker vessel, it should cause you to think a certain way. It should cause you to wake up to what you're literally just saying. What did you just say? These are not phrases that should come quickly off of our tongue. These are things that carry with it so much depth and so much meaning that if we do not understand these things properly, it will cause us to fall into incredible error as a church. So point number one. Read 1 Peter 3 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Point number one literally is woman, and we're going to define woman, and we'll get to the definition of woman, but I'll just help you out. Woman, you can put a dash taken out of man. That's the biblical definition of woman taken out of man. Turn your Bibles back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. This idea of saying that a woman exists as a husband, honor her, and the word woman there, we got to figure out when was the word woman used first. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go all the way back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be in verse 26 and 27 to start off. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then the Lord said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're going to see here from on verse 27 there in your Bibles, it should kind of show you that's a poetic point and that the poetry should have some indentation going on to it because it's supposed to show you to wake up a little bit. When you see a change of writing, you're going to go, something's different happening here. And what we have is a poetic form 
here a, a summary of what happened. And what we see here very clearly, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. That word him there is the masculine, another way of saying he created man. And now he's going to say from this man here, what do we see? We see that male and female are created in God's image. They are both image bearers. We do not have the word woman used yet. We are introduced to these two created beings that are created in the image of God. No other created being is created in the image of God. Except for these two created beings, male and female, are created in God's image. Now it's interesting, in verse 28, God blesses them. And in blessing them, He's going to give them then, if you want to call it walking orders. What are the orders that they are to do? So this male and female they created, it says here, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so what we see here is we call what has been called by many, by scholars, as the creation mandate. The mandate that was given to the male and female at creation, here's what you are to do. They are to be, we see in the text, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. This idea of fill the earth and subdue it, be fruitful and multiply, all of these things are kingly terms. These are terms that would be given to a king, like a king subdues his area, brings it under control. He is sovereign over those things that have been placed underneath of him. Literally, Adam and Eve here, well, which we'll find out later, but male and the two people here, male and female, have been given the role of being fruitful, multiplying, subduing, and having dominion over the animals. Can mo continue moving along here. Go over to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 23, and we're going to see this now explored even more. We're going to see the way this played out, because now in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to get a more detailed description of how this male and female were created. So let's look at verse 15. The Lord took man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. The Lord took the man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Now the woman had not been made yet, had not been created, and he takes man and he places man in a garden for two things to do. The two things that they are given to do, Adam is told to work the garden and to keep it. This idea of keeping the garden, when you think of the word keep there, this, it carries with the idea of protecting. Um, we would use a term, sometimes we use it like this, if someone is leaving something, they'll say, hey, can you keep an eye on that while I'm gone? But it's even more than that. It's not that he just sat there and watched it, he's protecting. This is an active understanding of I'm keeping it, I'm protecting it, I'm using it for what God had given the purpose of these plants to do. Not only that, he was called to work it. We see Adam, this idea of work it is to bring forth more fruit, to multiply it. Notice Adam here is given responsibility of the garden. God is, places man there and he says, here's the responsibility that God gives man to work and to keep it. So when you wake up on Monday morning, you're complaining about work and you think that work is part of the fall, that is not the case. God has given us work for us to enjoy. Now the sweat of our brow and the labor is part of the curse, but to enjoy work is not a bad thing. Now we can enjoy work more than what we are family, but that's not what we're talking about here. So what we see here is responsibility given. Now notice, once the responsibility of working it and keeping it, God then says to the man in verse 16, and the Lord commanded the man, saying, so here's a command. 
Notice, given responsibility, and then what comes next? Command. Here's the command, because he's been given responsibility. Because he's been given the responsibility to work it and to keep it, the command then is you can eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you will surely die. This is, carries with it that keeping, that protection part. He's saying that because you are now given responsibility, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Here's part of your responsibility, guarding this tree, protecting whatever is going to come from this tree, All right, keeping the garden. This command to keep, Adam is the keeper of the garden. He is the one that is responsible for the garden. And then we see in verse 18, Adam has his job to keep the garden, to take care of it, to be fruitful and multiply. The Lord is going to say, it is not good that man should be alone. And I will make him a helper fit for him. So Adam was called to keep, to work, to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion. And God says he can't do this alone. It is not a good thing that man should be alone. And what is God going to do? I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. Now, it's interesting, we don't get the creation of woman for a couple more verses. Now, it is not as if God is just writing along and has a side note. There's a reason for every single thing that has been placed in the Bible of what is going to be done. Remember, Adam was given, if you want to call it the keeping role or the husbandness that is needed in the garden. And he understands he can't do it alone. Now we have verse 19 and 20 where Adam names the animals. So the Lord brings all the animals, and Adam starts naming them. What we're seeing in him naming the animals is that representative head, that man is head over the animals. Remember, they were subdue the earth. And one of the ways he's subduing the earth and everything in it, he's literally naming the animals. And in naming the animals, he is showing his headship over the animals that are here. Very interesting. There's so much you could say about the serpent and everything else. But remember, Adam was given the headship over the animals. There's so many bunny trails, I'm trying so hard not to run down. And then in verse 20, after naming the animals, there wasn't anything that was going to be fit for him. This helper fit for him was not there. So what does God do? God taking the initiative here. So the Lord caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and while he slept, he took out of his ribs and closed up this place of flesh, And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. What we see in verses 21 and 22, that God makes woman out of a rib. He makes a woman out of a rib. So what is the significance of that? We're going to find out in verses 23 and so forth. Again, we see another poem here. Isn't it interesting? The next poem we see, the next song you almost see here, The man is going to say now. So God creates this helper, this one that is fit to help Adam, literally out of Adam, and he brings the woman to the man, and the man then says the same thing three times. It is not that he is stuttering. He's saying this because there's an importance to it. Literally, here's what he says. And the word this here, if you are an underliner, underline the word this, because this here is a cry. He's crying this out. In a way, he'd be like, We would say to this, this thing here that's coming, and he's pointing out, he's crying out the facts about what is in front of him. This, at last, 
Notice the cry there. Finally, the what? The helper is here. This at last, after he could not find a helper fit for him, he cries out, this at last is, then he says the same thing, bone of my bone, which literally means she was for me. Flesh of my flesh, which literally means what? She was for me. And then, because of where she came from, she will be called this. Woman, why? Because by the very definition of the word woman means she was taken out of man. Think through that for a moment. When God created woman, He took the woman from man, affirming the sharing of nature, affirming the sharing of family ties. But now we're going to see some major differences. What we're going to see here is this idea of woman that God has created, this this literal being here, is not a neutral human being that has been added feminine attributes or even feminine parts. As if you remove the part, you removed being a woman. What we literally have here is from the very core down to the very fiber of the woman's being, she is a woman from the very core of who she is. Literally, you could figure out, and we look back in history, you find a bone, you can literally tell, is that a female bone or a male bone? Literally, to the very core of who they are. You can determine these things. This is what the text is telling us. And so what we see here is what we, we see their relationship to one another. This is at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We see the relationship to one another. We also see that they were created to fulfill a purpose. And what was the purpose? To be fruitful and multiply and, f- and fill the earth and have dominion over all of these things. And so these two, male and female, we now see them as man and woman, literally falling under the idea of man, which under the idea of man carries with it by nature, male and female, like we use the term even now, all of mankind. We're not just talking about men, we're talking about men and women. And why do we even use that? Because where did women come from? They came out of man. This is why we can use these terms. That's why we don't have to surrender biblical terms to the wokeness of our world. And we say, no, we don't have to bow to those things. We speak the truth because literally words have meanings and the meanings control how we use them. All right. And so as we look at these, we say, why do we use it as God's word said? Because God's word said it. And that is truth. And so what we see here is the irony. And the greatest thing is when you hear the word woman, the irony is we see a world that's trying to destroy any understanding of God. And literally we have women standing up and saying, I'm a woman, I don't need a man. By the sheer definition of saying you're a woman shows what? You've been taken from man, the interdependence of one another that God has created. And the ignorance that is there is so, it just, it shakes me down to the core to go, church, wake up. This is not something that we have the right to just say whatever we want with it. So when we hear the word woman, it should immediately cause us to remember that God, these, that God has created this woman to be in relationship with man. And this man is to treat her as he treats his own body, which we'll get to a little bit later. Why? Because it literally is what? His own body. So we'll get to this as we move forward. Now let's look at the term wife. Because in verse 24 here, Genesis chapter 2, 24... It's interesting, we get a little side note here, a little commentary on 
what is happening here that Moses gives us. And it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is the first time we see this word wife mentioned. He shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So what we see here, point number two, is wife. It's incredible. Notice the husband and wife, he literally is saying the two become one flesh, a shared life experience. They will share life together. They were created to share life together. And so what we see here in verse 24, this is a summary of marriage. And the reason why they're becoming one flesh is literally because they were at one time one flesh until God made a uniquely fitted support helper for Adam, unique yet from himself. This is where we see the biblical understanding of marriage taking place. So what we see here again is marriage is not a cultural idea. From the very cornerstone that God has established relationship, He established marriage at the very beginning to be between the two image bearers, male and female, a husband and wife. And because He established it, so everything about this relationship and how it functions is God's and for, his, for Him to determine how these things look. I don't care what law you pass. I don't care what you do one way or the other, whatever you want to call it. God is the one who instituted marriage, and God is the one who you will be held accountable to. It's, it's up there as well as we live in a day and age where we think that as long as we change the word for it, somehow it's going to make it better. You know, we don't call sin, sin anymore. We don't use terminology as if we just downplay the thing, it's not going to be really that bad. So we used to call sex, sex outside of marriage fornication. Now we just call it two people sleeping together. Or if you went and committed adultery, we don't call that anymore. We just use the term an affair as if, what's up with that? I still, there's a movie that I was going through in our own in our own family, and I was looking through our uh, VHSs, and there's a movie called An Affair to Remember, and I said to Allison, look how horrible this is, and she goes, they were using the term event at that time, and so, but we even, we see how we change these things, we see how we change all of the stuff around us just to soothe it away as if that's going to change, but words mean things. Saying that, Ephesians 5, verses 23 and 29. Showing again that Paul is picking up on the same thing. Paul, who's writing literally thousands of years later. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, he's talking about this wife. And when he starts building upon this wife, we're starting to see that not only is this woman taken out of man, and so his relationship is going to be one of flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. What we're going to see here now, Paul even builds upon this. In verse... 23. Let's start off this. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife. Right, I love, in your notes there, you should have an underline in between the husband is the head. Now, I want to make sure we're clear on this. Paul is not saying the husband ought to be. He is not saying, I wish the husbands were. What he is saying by very definition, if you are a husband and you have a wife, you literally are the head of the wife. You either are being doing a good job of that or a poor job, but by the very fact of you being a husband, the husband is the head. It's a foregone conclusion. No difference than if I would have to sit here and say, we're talking about a bachelor, and a bachelor is an unmarried man. And you would go, well, duh, that's what the word bachelor means. All right, this is about as duh, back to that in the statement, is saying the husband is the head of the wife. Why? 
all we've been talking about, so forth, because God has placed the husband in the leadership role in this. And then it goes even on, as Christ is the head of the church, not Christ ought to be the head of the church, not if the church recognizes Christ as the head. It literally says Christ is the head. So if you're trying to say that the husband isn't the head of the wife, literally what you're trying to say is Christ really isn't the head of the church unless, and you just your biblical hermeneutics is just caving. Now notice this, though. With that, the husband being the head of the wife comes immense responsibility. Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself is its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also the wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. Where do you think he got that from? Genesis 1 and 2. All right, you literally, this is, you're loving her. Why? Because she literally is from you. All right, love her like your own body because she literally is yours. The two have become one. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so we could keep going on that, but we need to get back to the sermon here. The husband is the head. He's to love his wife as he loves his own body. And notice what the text continues to go down on and say. Therefore, a man should... Oh, Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, so just as Christ does the church. This idea that a husband is called to nourish and cherish his wife. This idea of nourish, what carries with this, that literally when the husband looks at his wife, he should see literally his own body, and when he sees his wife as his own body, he will provide for her. That's that nourishing part. And that cherishing part is that love for the gift that she truly is. When you cherish something, you treat it with respect and honor. That is why Peter can go down into 1 Peter chapter 3, and he literally talks about husbands, honor your wives as the weaker vessel. This honoring that comes literally becomes because the husband is nourishing and cherishing his wife. So when he literally hears the term wife, he should think his own body he should immediately think, too, that he is called to nourish and cherish her, which by definition should cause him to immediately start to say, I need to honor this wife that you have given me. This word here, honor, in the text in 1 Peter 3, 7, if you're not there yet, you can flip back to it. We see here, this word honor means precious. A godly wife is precious. We just spent three some weeks talking about what God has called godly women to. Men, I'd like to speak to you here for a moment. So we spent three weeks talking about a godly, how godly women had acted in the past and how they are called to act now to bring about the, the change that they so desire for their husbands. We talked about how the world is out to say the exact opposite of what a godly woman should be. The world is saying, you know, if this is black, that's white. But here's something I think you need to remember. The world is literally telling your, your wife the exact opposite of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. And here I'll give you an example, a fictitious example. So let's say uh, Allison does some substituting at times in different school districts. So let's say one day she comes in 
She's got a break, so she goes into the teacher workroom, and there's about four or five ladies sitting there. And Allison, in this example, is thinking, and they go, what are you thinking about, Allison? And she said, you know, I've really been convicted lately that I don't really do believe I'm doing a good job of submitting to my husband. Can you imagine what the ladies, I mean, when their jaws are like, like, what just happened there? All right, like she could have dressed like a Viking and ran down the hallway and created less stir than her idea that she's embracing this huge, archaic, so not good in any way, shape, or form that our world is trying to tell these women every day. And the sheer fact that, guys, listen, the sheer fact that you have a spouse that is at least trying to follow what God has called, that is at least saying, uh, by God's grace, I am trying to learn what it means to live as a godly woman. By the sheer fact of that, men, you should wake up and say, that's a precious thing. Because the world is doing the exact opposite about women, trying to tell them all these things. By the sheer fact that you have a spouse that is trying to trust God, not trusting you to put their faith in you instead of trust God, and trusting God, living then as a quiet and gentle heart that will bring about that lasting change by the sheer fact that you have a spouse doing that, or at least trying to do that, at least acknowledging this is something we should treat them as precious. But yet what can happen is so many times we think, well, of course you're supposed to do those things. You know, like, what's wrong with you? And you're trying to go, do you understand, men, what your wives are up against? Every single thing that our world tries to tell them is the complete opposite of what the Bible is saying. Everything that they've grown up to hear about what is woman strong, what is all these other things are complete and utter the opposite direction of what God has called them to. And men, do we really realize and do we really encourage our wives in those areas? Or are we more of a hindrance to them to what they've been called to do? Because a woman who stands for her God-given role is something to be encouraged and supported and reminding of how precious these women are. But here's what can happen, guys. Even in the same area, we can become very lazy in our minds and we start to expect things. We can become very lazy when it comes to nourishing and cherishing our wife. We can become very lazy. And before you know it, we just expect things to happen. We just expect this to take place or that to take place around the home. And we have no longer started to cherish our spouse. We've just started to treat him like one of the guys. I came across an old country song that puts it in such a phenomenal way of the wrong attitude that men have. And this is a song of a man that's either singing to his girlfriend or his wife. The song goes like this. Put another log on the fire. Cook me up some bacon and some beans. Go out to the car and change the tire. Wash my socks and sew my old blue jeans. Come on, baby, fill my pipe, and then go fetch my slippers. Boil me another pot of tea. And then put another log on the fire, babe, and come and tell me why you're leaving me. The guy goes on to sing, I did not, did I not let you wash your car on Sunday? Did I not warn you when you're getting fed? Ain't I going to take you fishing someday with me? Well, a man can't love a woman more than that. We, by God's grace, sadly, we do this all the time. In our own minds, we go, well, listen, I mean, I let you do all of these things. I mean, what? what's wrong? You know, I let you do this. You, listen, I have not once ever fought you about doing the dishes. 
I've let you do those all the time. Not once have I ever said to you, you can't do the laundry, dear. No, I mean, what's, what's wrong? And we start to expect all of these things, and never once do we say, do I treat my wife with that preciousness that she truly is? Or do I start to just demand things? Because if we're not careful, we start to treat our wives like that invisible thing. Because here's what happens in my house. I walk over socks long enough, they're picked up. Oh, they just get picked up. You know, I leave something there long enough, all of a sudden it, it's gone. And then it gets folded and put back in my drawer, and I go, it must be magic how these things happen, you know? And before you know, I'm not treasuring my spouse, I'm just expecting. And, and then we're left as husbands scratching our head wondering, what's a man got to do? And here's what the Word is telling us. You're to love your wife. You're to honor her. You are to pursue her. You are to deny yourself. So literally hearing the word wife should awaken in us these things. Should cause us as a man, when sit there and go, well, hey, wife, can you come and immediately, you just said that word, what it should do. Cause you to remember that your role is to honor and to cherish and to encourage them, not use them as, what if you want to call it a maid or something else. Because if not, we will live our lives, sadly, like this guy, and we will live our lives, instead of honoring and cherishing our wife, we're going to live our lives like the country guy singing, put another log on the fire, and just thinking that's the only reason that they're there, just to throw another log on the fire. And before you know it, we're not realizing that literally by her definition of being a wife, she is to be honored and cherished and cared for. Now, Peter goes on even more to say this in the text here, 1 Peter 3, 7, where he goes even to more, and he says... Husbands, love your wives, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Then he uses the phrase weaker vessel. This idea of a weaker vessel. Now, this idea of a vessel concept uh, is seen also in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where Paul is talking about as vessels here, as clay vessels, we have been entrusted with a treasure, and the treasure is the gospel, that we've been given these vessels that we live in, calling male and female vessels, all right? And so when we see this, so that would mean, notice there's an er on the end of that vessel, all right? So we have two vessels, both weak compared to God. We're both finite creatures, but we have an er next to the other vessel, all right? Remember, we have these clay vessels here, and literally what this means, and we say weaker vessel... It, it doesn't matter how you want to splice the word, it always comes back to the same thing. She is weaker, and it's speaking physically. It is not speaking mentally or anything else. It is literally speaking physically, and it's using a broad category here. And we know this. And I would say, for those of you who think, no, 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 men and women are not any stronger or weaker than one another, I would say even a secular, evil, woke society still understands that. I don't know why you don't. And then I'll give you an example. I'll just do two sporting events. You look at gymnastics, and you have men and women competing there. Gymnastics, they all, everybody knows, and this is just a God-given image-bearer of God, that the things done in the gymnastic world for women are all about grace and balance and beauty, and you get over to the men's part of gymnastics, it's all about strength under control, because they were created differently. Same thing when it comes with track. I don't care how you put them together, the guys are going to be faster than the girls. Just look at their records. All right, it doesn't matter what you're going to do. You're going to say they were created and they have differences. 
And to sit here and to try to, to, try to say anything different is just in being ignorant of the fact. But we still are dealing with this weaker vessel. Now, husbands, I'm talking to you, and men, I'm talking to you. Men, we have this wonderful thing that God has given us called testosterone that makes us love competition. We love to compete, and when we start competing, one of the jobs when you're competing is to exploit the weakness of your opponent. If Think about a game of football. If you find out there's a weak lineman on the other side, you run every single play right down that guy's throat, and you put him in counseling for the rest of his life, and you win the game. All right, you exploit it. If you're a businessman, what you do is you find the weaknesses of your, the people, your, the other business, so you find where they are weak, and what do you do? You exploit it. When you're trying to sell your product, it's always why my product is better than the other person's product. Their product is weak here, we're strong here. And all day long, we're looking for weaknesses, men, and working on exploiting them. And all of a sudden, then, we come home, and if we have the idea that this is a co-equal with me, you look at your wife's weakness... And what do you do? Run her over like you were doing a linebacker run here. All right? No, that's not what God has called us to do. It doesn't say exploit your wife's weakness because she is the weaker vessel. It literally says to do the exact opposite. Honor her. And this is a foreign concept to us as men. Yet Peter is saying plainly here, she must be honored as the weaker vessel. And even goes on to say, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, that she is an heir with you of the grace of God. Heirs, what we see is heirs of the same thing, yet we're going to see differences here. God has designed the woman's vessel, this vessel thing called woman, to be different from the very core. All right, and so she is going to be different than you men. All right, and here's the part that I would encourage us to remind ourselves of this. In this weakness, this weakness is something, again, I'll say it over and over and over again, is to be honored. To be honored, that means it's to be protected because it was designed for something different. Honor, protection, nurture, providing for, taking initiative of, and I'll give you another example of how this plays out. So when we think of the idea of weaker vessel here, and we're talking, and Peter is saying in the physical realm, because especially when you're writing to an an agrarian society that Peter is writing to, when you have more people in the fields working and things like that, Women can't move things as much as men can do and all these other things. And before you know it, you can look and go, what, what value are you? And women can be very then uh, not respected. But Peter is saying to this group, as the weaker vessel, we honor them. And I would argue, remember, different roles. So in this example, I'm comparing a sledgehammer to a guy and a teacup to a girl. So I took a sledgehammer the other day, and I needed to smash in a post. I take the sledgehammer, I just hit that hammer as hard as I can, because it was designed to take the blow. It was designed to take the weight of smashing something else. If I took the teacup and tried to do the same thing, it would break. It would be ridiculous for me to get angry at the teacup or the people that made the teacup, and be like, you kidding me, right? I can't, why isn't the teacup going to smash in my post. And the people that made the teacup would say it wasn't designed for that. And so we look here and we understand that each of us plays our role. There's a weight that is given to men and there is a beauty in to be honored to women of that weaker vessel that is to be taken care of and respected. Another way of saying it, and one guy said it one time, 
we treat our, lo- our wives in that top shelf living, where you, you don't put your fine china on the bottom shelf. You put it on the top shelf because you respect it and you nourish and cherish it. You put it on the bottom shelf, all you need is a two-year-old and you will not have china anymore. All right, what do you do when you want to care for something? You remove it in a place of respect. And we know this. Yet for some reason, we seem to lose it. But then all of a sudden, something shakes our culture to the core and we go, oh, that's right. We, we live in a day and age where we literally have two incredibly corrupt nations fighting one another, Ukraine and Russia. Both of them are corrupt to the very core. All right, and so what we literally have in this, though, which is amazing to me, when Ukraine goes to war, even though they are corrupt and not a God-honoring thing, what do they do? They send their women and children packing, and they leave the men there to fight. And you're going to go, where did that come from? Again, I would argue these are God-given innate things that we know down to the very core, but a society, when they say, no, there is no difference, you lose more than what you will ever get back. It's interesting, too, I love listening to speeches that are made that rally men to a cause. And it's interesting, one of the lines that can get a group of guys to run into sudden death is literally say, let's do this for our wives and children. You get them going. Or you don't go, let's do this for our dog back home. They're like, "Uh, maybe not. I won't do that. Or the same thing too when you have merchant fighters, guys you pay to fight, versus a guy that literally goes, if I do not win this battle, you get my wife and kid. He's going to stay there a lot longer than the guy that's getting paid 10 bucks to stand there. That guy's taken off at any moment because he has no skin in the game. Because we know this as men that we have been called to lay down our lives for our wives and children. So even hearing the word wife or weaker vessel or woman should invoke in all these things, things that we should be causing, calling us as men to rise up and to do. That is why I would love to put an X through and to cancel, to add cancel culture to this concept, uh, the battle of the sexes is a lie. I mean, like from the very, very core. Men and women were not meant to compete against one another. Uh, just across the board. Why? You have different roles. So when a man is trying to compete for a woman or a woman is trying to compete against a man, you're not going to see what you were hoping to see. All you're going to see is difference because you weren't designed for that. Yet sadly, we have adopted this idea of competition between men and women and we've liberated men and women from their God-given roles and chaos is reigning literally to the point now. And in women trying to liberate themselves and the whole LGBTQ thing coming, we literally have men saying that they're women for less than a year, and they win the Women of the Year Award. And you're going to go, how is that possible? It's because we are so confused. And so we have to ask ourselves, it is time for us as men to wake up, and when we see women, when we see our wives, when we see and understand that they are the weaker vessel to be honored, not to be exploited... How do we then communicate this to the next generation? Because I can guarantee you, you take them to anything. You put them in the altar of Disney and get them to learn. You're not going to learn that. You put them at the altar of anything else, and they're not going to be learned. They're not going to be taught what does it mean to be a godly woman or a godly man. What is your role that God has given you? So here's what's in front of us as a church. Number one, we are to teach the next generation these things. 
It needs to be communicated and said. Then followed up, it must be demonstrated. We must teach the next generation. We must demonstrate that. That means all of you demonstrating this. Because I can guarantee you, my own children, if you don't do it for anybody's children, say do it for my own children, because guess what? My family is not perfect. My marriage is not perfect. They need to see also from you guys that you're not perfect either. But what they also need to see is that you living out your life as best as God has given you the ability to in a way that you are at least pursuing after these things. And as you demonstrate it, because I know growing up, there were so many things my dad said that it made no sense to me. And then someone else would say the same thing. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. The oneness and the surrounding of one another, of demonstrating that. And number three, then the encouraging. I started off last week telling you about the ignorance that I had as a young married man, and now I'm just an older married man, probably with the same amount of ignorance that is still there about how to interact with my wife. But here's what happens. Uh, Caleb and I, before the service, were joking back and forth about um, when we were first married, about how selfish we were and about how we had all these dreams that we were going to do one day about this thing or that thing. And, you know, we just had to get our wives to come along with it, you know, and we were just going to go do all of this. And then all of a sudden we realized that we were not denying ourselves anything. We were still just being really selfish. And at least we admit that we're being selfish now. Maybe we haven't changed a whole lot, but we're seeing it. Where we're seeing the laying down of our, ourselves for another My prayer is that one day when my son sees his sister, he sees a woman. And he registers in his mind, that's different from me. I act differently towards her than I do my dad. We've tried this. We go through things like you don't wrestle with your sisters. You want to wrestle with someone, wrestle with your dad because they squeal. All right, because you, you think and he'll go, well, I wasn't being that hard. I'm like, you don't understand your own strength. You want to wrestle with someone, go wrestle with dad. When I look and I hear a man sitting in my office and he says, I'm thinking about leaving my wife. When those words wife come out of his mouth, he should start to tremble because it's his wife. He literally just said his Wife. So you know what that means, guy? Think about what you just said. How's your attitude doing with all of those things that come around? Just those words even coming out. And then when we see the way that men and women are not equal, we honor that. We don't exploit it. That's my prayer for us as a church. And so when I was mulling over what did we learn today, that was yet to be seen. Because each one of us, whether you're married or not, you're interacting with women. You start to honor them, there will be whole industries, multi-million dollar industries that will shut down. When we start honoring women, I truly do believe we will set the tone for the next generation to have a group of ladies that are not trying to fight a battle that they were never fight and they're never meant to fight. 
that they will be doing their God-given role as us as men lead the way. Not because we are in a spot of privilege, but because we are in a spot that is created by God to be the initiators, to be the protectors, to be the providers. We got one more sermon on this. But before we leave this spot, you may have said, Tim, it felt like you talked a whole lot about ladies today and not about men. Uh, You missed the point. The sheer fact that you said woman, I know I said ladies there, but the sheer fact you said woman literally should cause you to say what? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and who did I talk to today? Men. Because we miss the things so quickly. So there's a lot in these words, women, wife, weaker vessel. My prayer is is you as men, you as husbands, will continue to explore and to awaken in your own spiritual lives how you can honor and respect these wonderful treasures that God has given us. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Help us. We fall short in so many ways. We fall short. And dearly Father, it's only by your Spirit that we can stand. As men, dearly Father, may they, my prayer is that the men of this church rise up to the challenge, that they don't fall into the lethargy, they don't fall into the passivity of I'm terrible, I'm no good, and fall down that route, but may they realize the call on them and rise up to the challenge. Rise up to be men who are willing to lay down their lives for others. Because, dearly Father, you have placed by God's grace into each one of us a God-given role that we do to the honor and glory of you. Help us, we pray. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You can stand with us as we sing.